I read that uh, each week some 36 million pounds is spent on our national lottery. When that lottery was launched in 1994, it had a slogan, it could be you, meaning it could be you who could win the lottery. Of course, the chance of matching all six numbers and winning the national lottery is something like one in 14 million, or the euro millions, it's one in 76 million. Or putting it into context, if you played the national lottery every week, you could only expect to win a jackpot once every 300,000 years. And if you compare that with the odds of winning the lottery with other things, you have apparently a 1 in 3,000 chance of being struck by lightning, a 1 in 3.7 million of being killed by a shark, and so we could go on. But despite all the odds, the millions of people who play the lottery week in and week out They do so because they long for a change in their fortunes. No doubt they dream about what they would do if they won that jackpot and the difference it would make to their lives to suddenly come into that untold wealth. We were reading about Joseph earlier and there was a sudden change in his fortune. I'm sure it was never in his dream as he languished in that prison. And it was that in the course of just one day, we read that he goes from being a forgotten prisoner, languishing in a prison cell, to become the second most powerful man in the whole of Egypt. It's the ultimate rags to riches story. From a pit to a palace, as we're calling our sermon this evening, And it could well be a a film title. This young man, thrown in a pit by his jealous brothers, placed in a prison by a false accusation from Potiphar's wife, but yet he is promoted ultimately to a palace. And the extraordinary happenings in the life of Joseph, as we have seen, what often seems to us to come about by as it were, chance happenings are nothing but the part of God's plans for his people. On a previous occasion, as we considered this, we thought about that when we become discouraged by life's trials and the difficult changes that come into our own personal circumstances, the life of Joseph Joseph encourages us to look higher, Joseph could have become bitter and cynical as he languishes in prison as the result of injustice, of false accusation, ingratitude and all the rest. But he views his situation from a divine perspective. It wasn't that he understood that he was where he was and how he got there or why he was there, but he continued to believe God. And God was never far from his thoughts as was evidenced when he spoke to his fellow prisoners, uh, the chief butler or the cupbearer and the chief baker. And as we shall see, when he first encounters Pharaoh, the first things that come off his lips is testimony to his great God. What Joseph didn't know, of course, at this stage in his life, was that through these severe trials and all the difficulties he'd been going through, God had a purpose. 
And that purpose was that God would have been preparing him and training him for a high position. He wouldn't have been suited as that arrogant young 17-year-old man uh, who came out of Canaan. But he needed to go through the anvil of preparation and training and trial so that he was fitted for the purpose that God had for him. And once again, dreams figure in the life and destiny of Joseph. Indeed, of course, they were the very beginning of his troubles. His brothers, over 20 years earlier, had taunted him when Joseph first told him them of his dreams. Back in Genesis 37, we read, Then they said to one another, this is the brothers, Look, this dreamer, Joseph, is coming. They called him the dreamer. But it would be through the dreams of the cupbearer and between those of Pharaoh that Joseph's own dreams would eventually come to fruition. So let's take a moment to look at Pharaoh and his dreams. Of course, there'd been a day when Joseph had high hopes of being released from prison, when he had been able to share with the cupbearer the interpretation of his dream and also that of the chief baker. And if you remember, as the cupbearer was released, Joseph said to him, please remember me to Pharaoh when you are released. But of course, the cupbearer forgot. And Joseph, who had been 28 years old then, but yet it would be another two years before Joseph would be released from prison. That must have been hard. That must have been like a lifetime to this young man. But yet behind this, we need to recognize that God doesn't make mistakes. This was everything working to his eternal plan. The seemingly bad experience for Joseph was all part of that preparation. And the seemingly bad experience of life we have, as well as those we like, work together for good. To those that love God. There's a wonderful promise in the scripture. There's a promise uh, that often trips off our lips, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And we need to see in the life of Joseph how those things actually work out and realize that the same things work out in our own lives. We need to see that we need to take on board what that promise means and the promise that applies to our every situation. Whatever comes to us, good or ill, all works for the good of God's people, those who are called according to his purpose. It was the king's birthday, Pharaoh's birthday, exactly two years to the day after the cupbearer had been released from prison. And we read that Pharaoh has two dreams. And in the first, Pharaoh is standing by the side of the Nile. And of course, the Nile did and still has a special significance and was considered to be the source of growth and fertility in Egypt. And in Pharaoh's first dream, out of the water of the Nile came seven well-fed and beautiful or good-looking cows. And they begin to graze. But the dream then turns ugly. A further seven cows follow the first seven. But these are gaunt, they're thin, they're ugly-looking cows. And then in a nightmare form, the ugly cows eat up those that are well-formed. And Pharaoh wakes up. 
It seems so real to him, so impressed upon his mind. But it seems he soon fell asleep again, and a second dream comes. And this time, seven very plump heads of grain suddenly appeared on one stalk. And these were followed by seven thin, blighted heads, scorched and withered by the east wind. And again, in typical nightmarish form, they devoured the seven fat ears of corn. And again, Pharaoh wakes, and he realizes it's been a dream. And Pharaoh was shaken, he was disturbed. This wasn't an ordinary dream, like he may have had on any other night. These dreams had a reality about them. These dreams couldn't be dismissed. There was some message, surely, for him there. They couldn't be forgotten. You couldn't even make a joke and laugh about them. Pharaoh felt he must find out the meaning. These dreams were important. And so he turns to those he always turned to for help in this occasion because there was something very different about these dreams. And we read in verse 8 of chapter 41 of Genesis, Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Pharaoh desperately needed to find out what these dreams meant. And so he calls for the magicians and the wise men of the court. Now, let's not think of these magicians as those who wave wands and produce rabbits out of a hat. These were a very special class of priests who taught wisdom and delved into mysteries. A centuries later, you may recall, that same priestly group were called upon to copy the miraculous signs that Moses did before Pharaoh. Though they succeeded at first, they were eventually forced to bow before the superior power of God. We read, for example, in Exodus chapter 8, now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lights, but they could not. So there were lice on men and beasts. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. However, in the day of Joseph, in which this happened, the Egyptians believed that the true power of the universe was magic. They believed in omens and sorcery and divinations and dream interpretations, and they relied on this magic to manipulate situations for their own benefit. For them, it, means, it was a means to determine the future and to try and provide an understanding of reality. And of course, we have much the same thing today with those who rely on mystical things, astrology, mystical ideas, new age and all the rest to try and provide meaning to life. People will turn to anything to try and understand what is happening. But these magicians of Pharaoh were at a complete loss. They could not understand the symbolism of Pharaoh's dreams. Similarly, later, of course, the Babylonian magicians could not interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. And God here was using dreams rather than verbal communication in order to show Pharaoh that it was the God of heaven who was in control. The so-called gods of Egypt and their magicians and their priests were no match for the king of heaven, despite all their claims to magical powers. As Isaiah reminds us, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, 
and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. And just as in our own day, the astrologers, the astrologers, the mystics, the new ages, and all the rest provide no answer, so did the magicians of Joseph's day failed. Meaning and purpose of life belongs to God the creator alone. And it is to him we must always turn to understand significance and satisfaction in this life. Well, the cupbearer was there in Pharaoh's presence that day, and suddenly, as he hears that these magicians and wise men couldn't interpret the dreams, the events of two years earlier come flooding back to his mind, as we read in Genesis 41, 9 and 10. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my thoughts this day. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker. This senior official in Pharaoh's court remembers how, when he had that dream when he was in prison, a young Hebrew lad came and correctly interpreted the dream, but also that of the chief baker. Joseph was that interpreter of dreams. He was a man who was tried and tested. And that's exactly what Pharaoh wanted now. And so Joseph is summoned. He's summoned to meet Pharaoh. Joseph could well have been disheartened, discouraged about those extra two years in prison. But yet God's timing is always right. God uses our imperfections and even our sins to further his purposes. That's quite astonishing. This never excuses our faults or failings. The cupbearer did wrong in not remembering Joseph as he'd promised two years earlier. But God uses the failings of the cupbearer to bring the situations to his desired will. We could say if the cupbearer had remembered or the butler had remembered Joseph those two years earlier, it might have resulted in Joseph being released and may even been sent back to Canaan from where he'd been kidnapped and Joseph's own dreams perhaps never fulfilled and the people of Israel included the promised line, the promised seed that we so often have been referring to in these studies in Genesis may well have perished in the coming famine. But of course that did not happen because God used the forgetfulness of the butler to achieve his purposes. Isn't that quite astonishing? Joseph, one moment forgotten, dejected slave, incarcerated in a dungeon, literally the word is pit, is suddenly called into the presence of the most powerful and rich man in the East. And so Joseph comes before Pharaoh. Uh, The commentator Philip Eveson in his commentaries on Genesis brings out a contrast between Joseph's state of humiliation and the exalted position to which he is about to rise as being typical of our saviour. That's why we read from Philippians chapter 2 a few moments ago. It was that the Lord Jesus literally rose from the lowest position of all, the death on a cross, to the highest position of all, the exalted Lord Christ, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Philippians 2, 8 to 11, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here we have the very Son of God brought to the most lowest position of degradation we could think of. And he went there voluntarily on our behalf, on behalf of his people. And God took him and he took him from that grave and raised him to life again. And then he ascended into heaven, exalted at the right hand. And in this life of Joseph, we have that little picture which helps us understand that which was to come. And so Joseph is summoned. He's called to meet Pharaoh. We can imagine having spent those years in prison, he wouldn't be particularly savoury. His beard would be long, and the Egyptians didn't like beards. So he was cleaned up, he was shaved, he was given some new clothes, and he was met and brought to the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was the greatest man upon earth at that time. And what we're looking at here is more than just an intriguing story. When we think about Pharaoh for a moment, he was the head and the representative of the most sophisticated culture of the day. A culture that prided itself on its abilities and its accomplishments. It was proud, sophisticated, intelligent, powerful, supremely confident, in everything, including its gods. And perhaps we see there a description of our own society and culture in which we live. A culture that thinks of itself supremely confident, powerful, intelligent, knowing what is right from wrong and what we should do, even down to its own gods. The Egyptians had gods for virtually everything, from the natural phenomenon of the sun the earth, the Nile, even Pharaoh was considered a god. But yet do we not make gods ourselves in our own culture? We make education a god or the environment. We've seen the clamour for climate change and all that means over this past week. And people crying out in the anticipation that if we get this right, then we can live happily ever after. We make health and success we make money. There are those papers that publish every year, the rich list, the hundred most wealthy people in the world. And thinking back to where we started, people want to get rich quickly through the lottery or whatever. And the gods of our society are many and varied and is what is strived for. Get education, get health, get success, get money, and you're set for happiness and contentment but we know that such things are but a fallacy. And what a contrast Joseph represented before Pharaoh. On one man, we, on one side, we have this man Pharaoh as the leader of the nation and all that that was meant. And then on the other, we had Joseph, and he was so radically different. He wasn't a man of many gods, but he was a man of one God. And he insisted that this one God was supreme and sovereign over all. 
And Joseph stands out as the representative of this one true God. And, you know, Joseph is to be an encouragement and inspiration to us to make a stand in the society in which we live, a society that despises and disdains any finality in religion. It is that Christianity, above all, is despised and rejected. Joseph might well have felt flattered as he's called into the very presence of Pharaoh. We read in verse 15, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret, but I have heard it said of you that you can understand to interpret it. And instead, utterly forgetful of himself, Joseph promptly corrects the king. Think of that, correcting such a powerful man. But he did so to give all the glory to God. So he says, Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Joseph recognised his situation for what it was. It was due to the hand of a sovereign God at work that he was where he was. You know, if someone had suggested just two days earlier uh, that uh, he, Joseph, would then enter the court of Pharaoh and that Pharaoh would consult a foreign slave from a prison, well, surely everyone would have laughed at such an idea. All of Pharaoh's wise men and magicians had failed in interpreting a couple of dreams that deeply troubled him. They were as mystified as Pharaoh himself, and try as they might, they could find no explanation. And Pharaoh was on the verge of despair, of giving up when he was told of Joseph. God had orchestrated this whole chain of events that brought Joseph into the very presence of Pharaoh so that Pharaoh was asking Joseph for this interpretation of the dreams. You know, we must see that God has designed that modern Christians have opportunity to stand before the culture of our day. We may be few, but we are called to make a stand for God. God has spoken to our society in his word. But men and women are confused, they're bewildered, just as Pharaoh and his wise men were. And society doesn't have the answers to the problems it faces. It tries all sorts of things, but yet we find the continual and ever-growing breakdown in society, in homes, the problems of discipline in our schools and our localities, the rise of drug culture, the rise of knife crimes and all the rest, and we throw all sorts of things at them, but we never solve. We can't find the answers. Every so-called wise or even mystical answer has been sought, but no answer comes. And humanity seeks for happiness and contentment in this idea we'll have unnatural relationships and all that that means. We'll change our identities. We demand to have freedom to be myself. But in reality, all these things fail and society is broken at heart. Joseph would never even have guessed that one day he would stand before Pharaoh. But now God gave him the opportunity. And we have the same God who gives us the same opportunity. We may not have opportunity to speak to kings and prime ministers and presidents, although that may happen, of course, 
but we do have opportunities to declare the truth, whether from the pulpit or in speaking to our neighbours or writing to those we know and have contact with. The tragedy we have today in so many of our Christian churches is that the truth of God is not proclaimed. We fudge the issue. We were thinking this morning of the reality of what it is to be a true Christian. And one of the great things we see that uh, men and women are sort of gathered in, given the idea that they're a Christian, uh, just because they call themselves by that name. The greatest issue we have today is that our message should be clear to the disturbed and broken generation around us. And I suggest that we do that in the very way that Joseph responded to Pharaoh. How did Joseph respond? Well, first of all, Joseph declares the supremacy of God. He had no truck with the gods of Egypt. He had no trick with the ideas of these magicians or these wise men. Joseph never suggested that God was one God amongst all the gods of Egypt, nor did he suggest that they were really all the same God, but just by different names. Right from the start, when he was before Pharaoh, he nailed his colours to the mast. It is not in me, said Joseph. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Joseph gives all the credit to God. Later on in verse 25, we have the same thing again. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Or in verse 28, this is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. And he hammers it home just in case there's any misunderstanding. And we read in verse 32 of chapter 41, and the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. You see, Joseph attempts no compromise between his religion and Pharaoh's. Isn't that so much the tragedy of today? We seek to compromise our religion to tone it down, to soften it, as it were, to take away from its cutting edge. We need and must declare that God's religion is the only true religion. I was speaking to someone the other day, and then was suggesting uh, that, I was telling them about the articles that went in Penzance Voice each week. And the question was, well, do all the other churches get a chance to write as well? And I said, no, but God has given us this opportunity. We use it for the moment. And God is to be seen and to be declared that the religion of the God of heaven is the only religion. God alone is supreme and does whatever he chooses and no one can stand against him. The magicians, wise men, even the gods of Egypt were no match for the God of heaven. And in our day, we must firmly reject the temptation to be hesitant and compromising. Like Joseph, we declare there is only one God and he is supreme over all. And there is only one saviour, one way to God. And that is through Jesus Christ, his son, crucified and raised again and ascended into heaven. 
and such truths and such things offend and such dogmatism will be criticised even by others calling themselves Christians. But what is the thing that really offends God? It is not the truth, it is compromise. We are called to stand for the truth. One commentator wrote like this, he said, as long as we think there is some light in the world's darkness and some darkness in Christ's light, we will never be able to help with the pharaohs of our age. But that wasn't all that Joseph said to Pharaoh. Along with God's supreme authority, we must declare the grace of God in salvation. And that's what Pharaoh, uh, Joseph did. Joseph insisted God had an answer for Pharaoh. And it was a favourable answer. What we read is that it came as an answer of peace. God had an answer of peace for Pharaoh. Well, what was this answer of peace? Was it that Pharaoh had nothing to worry about? Oh, don't concern yourself, Pharaoh. You know, everything will work out fine. No, that wasn't the case. There was tragedy ahead. There was a dreadful famine coming, and that would cause devastation. You can't ignore it. It will happen. You see, the peace, the answer of peace or favour came not from there being no problem, but by being told there is an answer to deal with the problem and time to prepare for it. We will deal with that, of course, on another occasion. And that is God's answer to our culture and society today. Not that there is nothing to fear. So many have this idea, well, there's nothing to fear. If, you know, well, we're all going to end up in heaven at the end. There is much in our culture to fear. In this past week, our Prime Minister has declared that the world is one minute to midnight, or one minute from disaster. And I would suggest he's never spoken a more true word. But yet, it is not the physical world that is so close to destruction that should so greatly concern us, but that each individual within the world of humanity is literally one minute away from eternity. There is something to fear for all who do not submit to God. There is eternal condemnation. And any one of us may be only that one minute away from eternity. But God has an answer of peace and an answer of favour for our day and a time to prepare. And the answer of peace and favour is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't the idea that so many have of, God will forget about your sin. God will ignore your wrongdoings. He'll sweep them under the carpet. Don't worry about them. That is not the answer. Sin must be paid for because it is offence against a holy God. And in the repenting of our sins and the receiving of salvation that God has made available through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is that that brings a release from fear. We no longer fear eternal condemnation. We no longer fear judgment. It isn't that judgment is going to disappear. It is that God, through Jesus Christ, has brought in an atonement against the sin of his people. In other words, this night, there is a gracious answer of peace and favour 
for those who turn to Christ. As we were hearing this morning, many put their hope in what they've done, their own experiences. But Joseph knew that wasn't true. The answer of peace he brought to Pharaoh is similar to the answer of peace that we can declare this evening, that there is peace to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we close with this question, do you know this peace? Are you just trusting on the fact that you just come to this building, this church, you tune in online from time to time, you come to a certain meeting, you even read the scriptures every so often. Do you know Jesus Christ? For there alone is where we find peace and forgiveness. And we give thanks and praise to God that he has given us that answer of peace, that we can come knowing that the fear of the condemnation that is due to our sin has been cleared away if our hope and trust is in Christ alone. And we know that personal relationship with him. And our prayer this evening is that each and every one here might indeed know that answer of peace for themselves through Jesus Christ, for his name's sake. Amen.